Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Gary Ann, who is a professor of surgery and vice chair of surgical research at the University of Vermont. He specializes in trauma and surgical critical care. His research interests include computational biology, mathematical modeling, and computer simulation, uh, as well as translational systems biology. Welcome, Gary. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. So I want to use one of your older papers to, to set up the context and the background. Um, and it's called uh, In Silico Experiments of Existing and Hypothetical Cytokine-Directed Clinical Trials Using Agent-Based Modeling, uh, in which you say um, the, the objective is to introduce a form of mathematical modeling called agent-based modeling, ABM, and demonstrate its potential uses in the evaluation of the dynamics of the innate immune response, IIR, and the development of possible treatments for systemic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS, or multiple organ failure. Um, and so before we get into the details of this, Gary, um, what exactly is ABM and how, what's the motivation of getting into into ABM in this in this kind of uh, yeah problem. sure I can uh, talk about that a little bit so agent based modeling is a form of computational modeling that looks at systems as aggregates of interacting components that operate based on a series of rules um, it is you know related to you know more formal computer science objects like cellular automata um, but agent based modeling uh, it, it matches very well with how um, many of us see the world is working. So we've, when you look at a system that has multiple components, you know, you can have individual components interacting with each other, given some sort of radius of information transfer, and then they act upon a series of, um, of rules based on that. And then, um, the overall dynamics of the system arises out of those sets of interactions. So many people interact with agent-based models or have experience with agent-based models by going 
to the movies when people did go to the movies. Uh, you know, so these um, very large um, like battle scenes or crowd scenes that are under uh, computer generated um, imaging um, are in fact agent-based models. So one of the first examples was from the Lord of the Rings movies where you can imagine that the battlefield represents this giant checkerboard and each individual creature um, represented in that particular battle is a you know a standalone little computer program that has relatively simplistic stand and fight rules. And yeah. um, when the armies meet each other, then the um, the individual agents um, undergo engagement and they follow their rules, and then you get this kind of very biomorphic type of behavior. Now, okay, yeah, oh, one of yeah. one of the characteristics of agent-based modeling is that it produces paradoxical behaviors where you can't necessarily infer the behavior of the overall system based on the behavior of individual rules. So like in the uh, computer, uh, the CGI example, when they first did these um, simulations, they could not actually get the armies to fight. They would program what they thought were very reasonable stand and fight rules, but once you had populations interacting, it, it um, manifested this exploit where uh, the armies would retreat almost immediately upon contact. So one of the benefits of this type of modeling is where you can have what you think are relatively confident ideas about how individuals behave, but when you take them into aggregate, you get these population effects that, um, that result in counterintuitive and paradoxical behavior. So, so if I understand this correctly, Gary, if I have a set of heuristics or set of rules, and each of those, each of those rules by itself is sort of simplistic, so both objective function uh, that that agent might want to minimize or maximize, or the rules that you that agent might want to operate under, are relatively simple. And then, are you assembling then a group of those types of agents? Um, and, and there might be interrelationships between them, but each of them could be defined more simplistically, and then you're looking at what the net effect might be exactly. at the system level. That's exactly the issue, and I think. One of the benefits of this type of modeling is sometimes you can look at those, you know, rules of how individuals behave. And, um, you can make an inference on how the system would behave as an aggregation of those agents. It turns out, however, that the interaction networks are very important in determining how that overall system behaves and you can't necessarily assume that you can understand how the overall system functions um, based on how individual rules occur. Yeah, so, so this is very amenable to biological systems, and that is where you focus on. And uh, presumably, when, when we look at a complex biological system, we can look at the components of, of that system, and the components are probably more easily definable uh, but often, uh, both from a, from a you know kind of pharmaceutical perspective as well as other type of intervention perspective, uh, the net effect of a set of actions is often very very difficult to define prescriptively, right? So, 
So is that the idea that you can define the biological agents, uh, different categories of them, uh, define them more simplistically, and then step back and see how, if you turn them all on, what the net effect is going to be at the in the biological system? Yeah, that's uh, that's very close to to what the intent is. So, you know, the the traditional reductionist method of of biomedical research, which is to take a system and um, reduce it into experimentally investigatable parts, right? That is kind of what the tradition of biology is, is you, you look at um, tissues and then you look at cells and then genes, et cetera. There's this kind of taking apart process in order to get, let's call them linearly reducible questions that can be answered with an experiment. And basically the sum total of the VAT almost the entire sum total of mechanistic information we have about how biology works is a result of, you know, the successes of cellular and molecular biology. So as it turns out, the, the vast amount of knowledge about how these systems work is characterized in sets of rules about how cells behave or molecules behave or genes behave under certain types of conditions. And, yeah, okay. so I think that that yeah, is, good. you know, part of the challenge associated with this reconstructive property um, or paradoxical behavior when you're dealing with populations of these entities. So, for instance, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so if ahead, you're if you're talking about a traditional drug development pipeline, you know, you you mm-hmm. you have a punitive target. You investigate that target in a series of in vitro experiments, cell cultures, and you gracefully scale up till, you know, you get to preclinical animal trials and then you try them in humans. Well, each one of those translational steps is a very, very lossy process. You have to make a whole series of inferences. (laughs) And, um, you know, it turns out in general that, you know, given the failure rate of most, um, you know, drug candidate molecules, the failure rate is extraordinarily high. So there's this um, reverse, I call it the reverse Humpty Dumpty effect, where the standard mm. you know, process of doing biomedical research is to take a system apart into its component pieces, but you can't kind of put those pieces back together in a way that cap- captures the richness of the original system. And agent-based modeling is a way to do that within a computer simulation. Right. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. You know, so th- these types of issues actually exist in, in financial markets, um, in organizations, complex organizations. Uh, I was at Pfizer in the 90s and uh, Pharma R&D, as you described, uh, has this problem. Right. So we have a variety of functions in the organization, clinical, manufacturing, toxicology, a variety of other functions, they all have sort of prescriptive objective functions <laughs> that, that they're trying to minimize or maximize. And ultimately, when we think about the R&D process as a complex set of things that, that need to integrate different things together, we don't really have a good idea of how those things are going to interact with each other. And so, so it's a similar situation, right? So we don't really have ex ante expectation of what the behavior is going to be. We know a bunch of components there that we can understand, 
but we don't really know the interactions between the components um, or any, any kind of complex other behavior that might emerge right in the system because of those components. And so, so I want to jump into uh, one of the other papers here to, to make it very practical. And it's entitled Examining the Controllability of Sepsis Using Genetic Algorithms on the Agent-Based Model of Systemic Information. Um, you want to talk a bit about that paper and, and what the objective was and well, how you applied yeah, it sure. there? So, um, you know, to step back just very briefly, that original paper that you described, which I think is from 2004, was essentially a proof of yeah. concept showing that if you took essentially the state of knowledge that was present in the critical care community in the late 1990s about how things actually work, and you instantiated that knowledge within an agent-based model that essentially makes that, that knowledge map go. It makes that static diagram of interactions into a movie. <clears throat> if you had such an object and you had tested the anti-cytokine trials that ultimately failed in the late 1990s, you would have seen that they would have failed, right? So <laughs> the idea is that you were using the computational representation of knowledge as essentially a filtering mechanism to identify what um, will not work. Right. right. It's just too simplistic a representation. Well, <clears throat> which part is too simplistic representation? Um, you know, the, whatever we do in the, in the ah. you know, in the clinical trials or any kind of R&D process, uh, I, I guess our natural tendency would be to sort of reduce the complexity, right, and, and make it more, well, more understandable and more usable. But in the process, you actually use a lot of the rich characteristics. And, and you're making a whole series of essentially opaque inferences, right? The, the supposition right. is that a rat or a pig under tightly controlled experimental conditions somehow reflects the clinical problem. I think that is an issue. So, so, that, so this model, that model, the idea of using an agent-based model for an in silico trial is essentially a, um, a hypothesis verification object task, right? Because the, the, there is no opacity for the computational model. It only includes what you put into it. It doesn't have any sort of hidden features. And therefore, that computational object represents an, a pretty objective representation of how you believe something works. Now, so the, the model, the in silico trial, gives your hypothesis the benefit of the doubt. It's like, okay, there's no you know, hidden features. There's no inefficacy of the drug um, you know, in terms of biodelivery. You know, there's no protocol divergence or whatever. Right? You were saying you believe the system works in this particular fashion. You believe that interdicting that system in this particular way will work. This will see whether or not it works. And it doesn't work. So the idea, so at that point in time, the result was kind of a negative one, meaning that um, you can't say what's going to work, but you can say what's not going to work. So it took, you know, 10 plus years before I figured out a way to identify what actually would work. 
And that is the second yeah. paper you referred to, the use of genetic algorithms, which is a um, yeah. computational method, essentially uses evolutionary principles as a, for an optimization task. Um, and uh, so what we did was we took the old model that had, had been demonstrated to, to disprove the efficacy of you know, mediator-based therapies for sepsis, which, of which there are none. And, and, and sepsis is just uh, sort of a, a very, uh, uh, very high inflammatory response and a very high mortality rate too, right? So people are pretty sick. They are, yeah, they, they, they are. I, you know, the, this yeah. is another issue with sepsis is that, you know, the, the definition of sepsis varies and it's very heterogeneous and it's very, um, let's call it consensus or political based. It's not it's terribly <laughs> biologically based. And I've written about that as well. <laughs> but suffice it to say that, you know, it is essentially what people who are in the intensive care unit die from. Um, it is, you know, received more recent notice uh, because cytokine storm associated with COVID is, uh, you know, sepsis-like condition. It's basically <laughs> disordered acute systemic inflammation. All right. So right. the the idea then was now we have this computational object, and can we use it as a proxy system to investigate whether or not it can actually be controlled in a prospective fashion. So I'm going to, I'm going to okay. refer back to a paper that's not one of mine, but some that, that you would be, might be interested in and when your readers would be interested in, which is called, um, can a neuroscientist understand a microprocessor? And, you know, and it's, it's a <laughs> variant of this old, um, you know, paper from, I think 20 years ago that asked whether or not biologists can understand a radio. And basically, it is, you know, right. um, a uh, example of whether or not the tools that are used in biology can actually gain any sort of meaningful information about the system you're trying to study. I'm talking about it in this particular context because that paper uses a microprocessor, a ground truth object to test the methodology that's being used in biology. And that's what the agent-based yeah. model in this particular circumstance is being used for. So the, the genetic algorithm here, uh, again, you, you sort of described the trial and error process. So you, you have a hypothesis, you can test it, you can figure out if it uh, most likely doesn't work. So you have set of set of hypotheses that don't appear to work. Uh, but uh, is a genetic algorithm there? Uh, it's really kind of feeding, feeding that uh, those, those results of those experiments, and really let it evolve into something uh, a little better. Uh, is <laughs> not idea? not exactly in this particular circumstance. Okay. The the thing that's not being optimized is not the hypothesis underlying the the agent based model. There's other research working on that. Yeah. Rather, it is the idea of trying to find a set of multimodal and temporally variable therapies that might work. So let me expand on that just a little bit. So yeah. Yeah. people may have heard about precision medicine or personalized medicine. You know, it's, it's used primarily in the context of, of cancer. But the idea right. in terms of sepsis is 
one of the stated challenges of doing clinical trials in sepsis is the complete heterogeneity of the sepsis population. And drugs may not work because patients are different from each other or different from themselves at different times in their time course. And the idea of a one size fits all therapeutic intervention will not work. And the logistics of doing combinatorial therapeutics, particularly those that are going to vary over time, is just not tractable in, in the clinical setting. You don't have time. Well, you don't. I mean, you can't actually yeah. figure out how to do that because let's say that you had four different drugs you might have to give in four different combinations every 12 hours, and you had to figure out how does that actually work. That's a multi-dimensional yeah. optimization problem, which cannot be done in the real world, but that's exactly what genetic okay. algorithms are for. So this particular paper said, okay, we're just going to determine whether or not this particular system can be controlled, and therefore we will construct a genetic algorithm focused on optimizing cytokine manipulation of the model for every 12 hours for the first seven to 14 days, 14 days, and see whether or not you can actually affect the mortality of a high mortality cohort. Hmm. Is it, uh, is it for, is it personalized for an individual or is it? Well, so the GA present, presents a generalizable multifactorial and multidimensional intervention that works for the largest group possible. So in this particular circumstance, it takes essentially, I think it was a 80% mortality cohort and dropped that mortality rate to 10%. Now that's a static policy. That's a consistent policy that requires manipulating 12 cytokines in different directions every 12 hours. But that is applied lockstep. To get personalized, you need to do adaptive therapy. And that requires the um, application of a particular control policy at a particular configuration of the system. So, so that's a, a different type of machine learning called deep reinforcement learning um, that most people have heard about in the recent past with respect to the game playing AIs from DeepMind. So Alpha Zero, Alpha right. Go, uh, Alpha Star, you know, these systems um, who train AIs to play games, uh, that system, we have applied that to this particular model as well uh, to create an adaptive, personalized approach to, to uh, controlling sepsis. Okay. And so, so the generalizable algorithm, it's sort of an initial, initial conditions or an initial model and that could take reinforcements back. It could improve over time uh, and it can adapt to the individual it's being um, applied to. You know, so the, the GA was just a, <clears throat> a concept demonstration to say that the system could theoretically be controlled to some degree. It, in, in its yeah. current form, the GA is not directly related to the deep reinforcement learning process, though though um, we have more exotic com combined approaches to, to deal with some of the the model improvement aspects. 
The, when you go into the machine learning world, though, um, that implies that you have, you're using historical data uh, to sort of predict or cluster uh, patients, right? So how does that fit with, uh, with, you know, sort of ah, the right. EBM? Right, so at this mechanics? point in time, we need to make a distinction between model-based DRL and non-model-based DRL. Right, so the game ba- the game okay. playing AIs are model based deep reinforcement learning, and the way that those systems work is they have yeah. essentially computational representation of the game, <clears throat> and they essentially fill out the possibility and trajectory space of that particular problem with enough density so that um, effective uh, probabilistic decision trees can be made. Right, so. Um, most people do not do model-based DRL in the medical area. And what they try and do is they try and use prior, prior data to construct, um, you know, uh, these um, decision trees based on available data. So one of the, you know, more commonly popularized ones is the, the DRL AI trained for, uh, the virtual clinician for um, sepsis management. Now that one, yeah. <laughs> that model is a model-free D, uh, DRL and it's control space, right? The control space that the AI has is essentially pressors and fluids. So it can, mm-hmm. you know, decide based on, um, you know, historical data, which one of things, things uh, that should be done. Um, there are, you know, problems with that because it cannot actually generate uh, novel counterfactuals for what happens if you don't do something. So the penalties for the, um, you know, for the decisions are not um, objectively put it that way. Um, but it can't try anything mm-hmm. new. So, so if you do model-free DRL, what you described is exactly the problem, is that you can't actually test a new therapy you can't actually try something that hasn't right. already been implemented in the clinic and actually been, you know, run at scale, had lots and lots of people who've gotten it. Mm. So alternatively, right. our model-based DRL is much more similar to the DeepMind projects in so much that the IRABM, the agent-based mm. model, is that instantiation. It is the model upon which the the AI agent learns. So it will run, you know, millions or billions of potential trajectories and manipulate the system, you know, in that particular fashion to come up with a, uh, a policy embedded within the AI that uh, controls that particular system. Okay. Okay. Um, Gary, we'll take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about, uh, you have another paper in the area of sepsis, and then we talk a bit about the, uh, the crisis in reproducibility okay. uh, paper as well. All right. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.
So we are back. Um, so, so Gary, we were talking about uh, sepsis uh, before the break and some of the agent-based modeling that you do, uh, genetic algorithms, uh, machine learning techniques. You have another more recent paper uh, in the area of sepsis entitled uh, Sepsis Reconsidered, Identifying Novel Metrics for Behavioral Landscape Characterization with a High-Performance Computing Implementation of an agent-based model. Again, sepsis, um, as you say here, uh, affects 1 million people in the US per year, very high mortality up to 50% and requires more than 20 billion a year in hospital costs. So it's a, it's a big problem. And as you describe, it is not very highly defined. Uh, it is very heterogeneous. So it, it's often difficult to precisely treat and so it's uh, it's very amenable to these types of mathematical modeling. You want to talk about a bit about uh, what this high performance computing platform uh, does in the ABM context? Sure. So um, you know, high performance computing is supercomputing to to most people, and the idea here is that you can generate simulated populations at much greater scale than are possibly clinically possible. And the reason you want to do this is because of the, the heterogeneity that you previously mentioned. The, there is um, a vast gap between the definition of sepsis and the definition of severity of illness, which is very much characterized at the organ level phenotype, organ dysfunction level phenotype, from the um, cellular molecular knowledge that we have about this system, you know, cytokines, cell populations, etc. Right. Right. So people have tried to use very um, rough types of characterization of groups of patients suffering from sepsis based on biomarker panels, um, you know, gene expression data, um, transcriptome data, these types of things. You know, but I think the, the challenge is that, that it is a moving target, as alluded to in the prior section, and a patient on day one is not the same patient as that patient on day five, right, and may require something different. Yeah, so for my own understanding, Gary, so sepsis is a condition, right? So you can get there from a variety of disease states, yep. right? And so, so that's the issue. So you could you could get there from a lot of different uh, different initial uh, initial conditions, and as you say, once uh, it has different stages, and um, is it is it as diverse as cancer that uh, anybody's sepsis is different from anybody else's sepsis? How it progresses? Probably not quite as diverse as cancer, given the you know the various types of um, ways that tumors can behave, um, but it is clearly very heterogeneous. So to, to take your example one step deeper, you know, people who have certain types of medical comorbidities like diabetes, obesity, um, um, smoking, uh, cardiac disease, disease, et cetera, have differential responsiveness to systemic insult. And therefore, they respond in a different fashion. So this, this paper that we're talking about now 
is an attempt to essentially map out the landscape of all the possibilities that are there with respect to trajectories of, of systems through cytokine space. What I mean by cytokine space is if you imagine every single mediator that you could measure, it represents a different axis in this multidimensional conceptual space that an individual patient will pass through as they go through their course of disease. So, so if you have the predictability, uh, if you have early intervention, is that, is that a condition you can avoid? It turns out that this paper suggests that that's not possible, right? And, and part of the reason for this paper is, to, as, as um, I alluded to with the neuroscientist and microprocessor paper, is to say, um, don't do this thing because it's not going to work. And we, we can prove that it's not going to work using a proxy system. So what we set out to demonstrate is with a model for which we have ground truth, there are no hidden variables and there is no, we can sample it every single time step, right? So there's no issue with respect to data density. So let me step back for a second. The, the, the invariable, um, let's call it excuse, for the failure of predictive biomarker panels is that there isn't enough data or they need more data, right? right. Now that, that's, a, that's a path to infinite regress because you can always ask for more data, right? <laughs> right. You can always ask for more data. Yeah. So what this project was focused on is say, okay, we will have a system which we recognize is vastly simpler than the immune system, vastly simpler. Mm. But it's pretty complex and reproduces the main dynamics associated with sepsis. And we will take, there is no data paucity there. This is where the supercomputing component comes in. Because we run yeah. these simulations on a supercomputer, there is no limit to the amount of data that you can have. And therefore, yeah. you can have complete state identification of the system at every single time spent possible. So every six minutes, across this multidimensional cytokine space for 90 days. I mean, that is a lot of data. And once you get that data, you want to say, can you predict based on any sort of biomarker panel that you come up with, whether or not that system is going to live or die? And you cannot. It turns out that there is no, and I make the, the qualification, there is no linear combinatorial biomarker panel that can predict outcome for this system. So, 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 so you say here that um, the, it examined by simulating over 70 million sepsis patients for up to 90 days. So this is simulating patients and, and patient behavior. So presumably you have a set of, um, set of heuristics there, or set of rules there. Well, it's the IRABM, the the model we talked about previously. The, the model you talked about, okay, okay. And and the key here is that a quote unquote simulated patient isn't like a complete organ, you know, containing individual. A simulated yeah. patient is one run of that particular agent based model. Right. Okay. Uh, but the data being generated, obviously, is dependent on uh, what what you have in the model, though, right? So, 
So, so, so ultimately, what is being tested here? Oh, what is being tested is whether this approach of looking for a biomarker panel for yeah. com- it's why it's, it's not yeah it's not viable. It doesn't. There is no. Okay. Uh, there is no uh, way that that system will work because we have taken away the complaint or the excuse that we don't have enough data and we don't have enough temporally rich data. And this is for a system that is much simpler than the real world, right? So if you can't right. even do it for a, a simplified version of the real world system, it, it, the model is complex, you know, but it's orders of magnitude less complex than, than the um, you know, real human system. You know, so even with a simplified system for which you have ground truth, for which there is no limitation on the data that you can acquire, if you use, um, you know, standard attempts to construct uh, uh, predictive biomarker panels, you will not get um, areas under the receiving operating curve better than about 70%, which is essentially a guess. Okay. And so, so just, just to repeat that for my own understanding. So if you put into a sort of a simulation of a, of a simple model in this area and do that, you know, for a large number of trials and look at predictability of, um, of a patient progressing into sepsis, even with that simple model, there isn't enough predictability. So you argue uh, if you really look at, you know, real systems, real patients, your ability to predict if that patient is going, going to go into sepsis or progress into worse conditions is, is uh, close to zero. Uh, using traditional methods. So the, using right. traditional methods. Okay. So the, the novel metrics that are alluded to in the title of this particular paper are the construction of these things called probabilistic bases of attraction. Um, and stochastic trajectory analysis graphs that do give you additional insight into what the what the possible outcome of a particular configuration is based on their particular position in cytokine space. So if you if you think about and this I think is a really important concept is that yeah. biological systems are probabilistic systems that they deal with inherent uncertainties associated with them. So an analogy that you can use, which is um, a very rough analogy, is that these probabilistic basins of attractions are not completely different from the idea of um, electron shells as probability distributions in quantum mechanics where the position of an of a electron follows some topological probability distribution based on you know, features associated you know, with its charge, et cetera. Um, and similarly, we can construct these probability clouds of where individuals may or may not be based on their position in multidimensional cytokine space. So, 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 um, have you shown that such a process has a high level of predictability? Uh, well, it sh- it shows that you cannot predict with any. Oh, it's still so you still cannot predict. Well, I mean, okay. So you, okay. So what you can do is you can um, 
you can uh, get probabilities, but if your probabilities yeah. are poor, right, then right. you're then you can't predict. So you can find outliers where you know have a ninety percent, ninety five percent chance, ninety nine percent chance of either living or dying. But those are almost mm -hmm. trivial cases because those are readily identifiable in you know clinically. The tricky parts are the ones where the probability distribution is about 50%. And there's a vast region inside the kind of space where this is a problem. So we have, you know, not to keep taking tangents, but we've actually addressed this to a certain degree by um, training an artificial neural, neural network to function as a predictor or a forecaster for the behavior of this particular system, not too dissimilar from how, um, you know, the weather service uses mathematical models to predict the future trajectory of a hurricane. Similar to that particular process, um, you know, it, the, the uncertainty is due to a different issue, but you have this essentially forecasting cone that given a particular, you know, set of data and a particular position, we can give you a probability distribution moving forward, you know, 30 minutes, one hour, six hours, 12 hours about where that system is going to be. And then you need to update that system with new data to reset what that cone is. So um, we have more recent work that uses uh, machine learning to train artificial neural network to do this. Um, and this I think is kind of the future of predictive analytics because you're gonna need that density of trajectory coverage to be able to do sort any sort of meaningful prediction if you're looking at uh, biomarker data. Right. So, so in a, in a practical context, then, uh, does, does it have value in designing an intervention? At this point, it doesn't exactly do that, though combining it yeah. with the DRL work we discussed earlier, eventually, I mean, it's my contention, it's the only way that you can do it. Right, because that's how control systems in every other field of technology function, that they have a underlying um, mathematical model or data you know, model, if it's simple enough, that, that is operated upon by a trained um, system, be it an expert system or a, a neural network. So I think the, in the future, um, I think the, it, it has to be this way because you can't actually get that sort of density of possibilities from the real world. So there are probably maybe 20,000 patients, uh, septic patients for which there exists data in all of human history, right? You know, that's yeah. a fraction of the 70 million that we simulated. And, and you aren't going to be able to fill out that multidimensional trajectory space using um, clinical data. It's impossible. Yeah, it's you know my uh, without knowing a lot about it, my my feeling is that these biological systems are chaotic systems, and you alluded to it. They could be quantum mechanical, and so our attempts to really understand it. Um, more from a component basis have always failed. So R&D processes, and I think you talked about this too, there is very little correlation between animal models and human models. 
but we go through this feel good exercises in farm r and d uh as if that is a very useful thing uh but ultimately it doesn't really increase um lot of understanding right of, of you know how human systems ultimately react to it right yeah so so and i think so, it's it's yeah it's easy to be very hard on the pharmaceutical or the biomedical research community but the but they're not at fault because they don't have anything else right right so these right. reductionist methods are necessary because you can't figure out in any other way how something actually works so it's there's a synthesis right. part of this that's missing so this so if you don't mind I'll, i will take this opportunity to to jump into that crisis reproducibility sure. paper because it is yeah, yeah, directly related yeah. to this issue right so right. for those of of the the listeners who don't know what the crisis reproducibility is is that in multiple biologically related fields some of the seminal papers that form the basis of you know multiple billions of dollars of drug design um cannot be reproduced by other laboratories right so it calls to question this kind of epistemic crisis of what is actually known and how much can we trust what we actually know now if you're a basic scientist you know this intimately because if you have a particular experimental system highly engineered and and calibrated to your particular setting every time you get a new postdoc every time you change the species of your mice every time you you change yeah. the feed that model breaks right that model is very very brittle and that must cause you it should cause you to question how reliable is the knowledge i extract from this particular experimental platform if it breaks when i do what are essentially trivial things to the real world you know environment of disease so right. so that the challenge that biomedicine has is it has no way of deciding what is similar between this system and this other system right they do it in a very kind of descriptive sort of way um but it isn't rigorous it's not objective right so when you take a mouse right and you you do something to it and then you say okay what is the essential mouseness of this particular representation of what we think is happening that would allow me to say mm-hmm. what is going on in this mouse is similar to this other mouse right so we want to be able to have yeah. some mechanism of of conserving what is similar when we look at it in different types of let's call them trajectories so this mm-hmm. goes back to the you know the idea of multiple trajectories from from similar rules that is at the core of agent based modeling where you can have exactly the same sorts of rules but you can have multiple different behavioral trajectories based on all sorts of individual perturbations right that occur to that particular object over time so my contention yes go ahead I'll I'll let this no no i was just going to say so uh again for for, for my own understanding so um the biomedical research as you mentioned uh because the the systems that they are attempting to to manipulate uh to influence are so complex 
they just um, they just do the experiments. They just look at the data, and what what you're saying is that the reproducibility of those experiments are not not very high. Uh, if I understand you correctly, Gary, what you're saying is that you can abstract that mathematically. If you can abstract that mathematically, then perhaps you can improve the reproducibility exactly. of the experiment. Right. So, so let's let's take out the example of bad data. Right. So let's assume that there's no measurement yeah. error, but you have two different mouse experiments that are performed by different postdocs, and you get two sets of data that are very different. Now you don't have measurement error. Now, you haven't done the right protocol or something like that. But the fact is that that mouse is able to produce that data. Whatever it is you did to it, you're able to generate that particular data. Right. So and this is this is one of the, the novel parts of this idea is that you actually want very messy data. You want data that's got a very yeah. wide spread. Because in order, because in order to hit those particular data points, right, you you need that those yeah. that that heterogeneity of data serves as a constraint on whether or not you can find a configuration mm. of your underlying hypothesis structure or model that can achieve those sorts of things. You know, so why is this important? This is important because you know every you know every scientist recognizes that mice are not humans. Everybody knows this, right? I mean, it's, it's like, you know, trivial. And yet people constantly say, oh, it worked in mice and therefore is promising humans. It's that, that particular step, right? There is no, there's no way to do useful failure if you don't have any sort of, of object that can be refined through that particular translational process. Yeah, so so we use this term mouse model, right? Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is that there is no model unless you can show some sort of mathematical uh, computational model of what the experiment uh, experiment is. Uh, because when we say it's a mouse model, there's a set of assumptions that go around it. And like you say, we can now take it to human. We expect certain toxicity and certain efficacy, but you often don't find any of those, um, right? Uh, you know, the correlations there are very, 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 very low. And so, so are you saying, uh, Gary, that there, you know there is no mouse model unless you can show a mathematical representation um, of it? I think saying no model is a little bit, you know, too encompassing because model is a very, you know generic term. So clearly, you know, that model can be implied. Yeah. But I think what is missing is a consistent representation of what it is that you're saying is happening in that mouse mm. that is all now also happening in that human being. Right. So as a mammal, right. a mouse has very many of the same cellular features associated with the inflammatory response. Now we know that that mod, that the mouse inflammatory system behaves very differently than human system, but the core components of that system, as as a mammal, are are shared. So, the con my contention is that 
that the variance between those two um, organisms can be reflected as a um, in the parameters that are associated with the model, right? Because that essentially affects the gain and the strength of the interactions that are present, which very often is the, uh, the result of, of um, genetic variability, right? Or epigenetic variability. Right, right. And if there is a process of scaling it and scoping it, then uh, even before running the experiment in a scaled-up and scoped-up system, you will have certain expectations. That's right. You would have some way to right. anticipate, yeah. based on your prior experience of using the model as this translational object, to say whether or not I have a reasonable expectation that this intervention is or is not going to work. Right, right. And so, so this has applications... Um, to, to both sort of reducing the number of experiments that need to be run uh, and or increasing the, the success rates potentially, right? Exactly. And um, is absolutely essential if you're going to do personalized medicine because the same principle right. applies to um, clinical interpatient heterogeneity. Because we're all human beings, the wiring is all the same, right? The parameters by which we respond are slightly different, right? Based on our genetic makeup, comorbidities, et cetera, right? So if you're trying to reproduce um, the heterogeneity of the clinical population, you need this grounding of the computational object upon which you now layer the various um, aspects of parameter space. And that's discussed in this, um, the, uh, the sepsis reconsidered paper as well. The concept of parameter space as a representation of interpatient heterogeneity. Okay. So this is a very interesting research area, Gary. So in conclusion, um, if you look forward five years, um, clearly, you know, the, the computational capabilities are increasing almost exponentially. Uh, we, could, we can solve very common problems now. We, you know, there's problems we couldn't even think of solving just five years ago. So, so if you look forward five years, where do you think this type of an idea uh, would go? And uh, from your perspective, where, where, does it, where might it have the, the highest applicability? Well, I have to say that I, I've been very discouraged over my 20 years of working on this. You know, because when I started with this, I thought, <laughs> yeah. well, of course, this makes perfect sense. And, and that's not how, you know, the scientific community works. So I, my hope is that um, there is some generalized realization of the importance of dealing with um, partial knowledge or uncertainty. And this is a whole other topic, right? But, but the idea that a, um, a partially okay model is very useful is um, important. I'm not going to say the George Box quote, which I absolutely despise, but, um, but, but the idea <laughs> is that a, a very useful model can be obtained from something that's not a complete representation of the system that you're dealing with. I think what's necessary from my standpoint is a concrete 
use case demonstration that this works, right? That a that the use of a agent-based model as a proxy system for which you design a controller and then you have the ability to execute that control in the real has a, a demonstrated efficacy in, in improving a uh, individual's outcome. That is the thing that that we're striving for. Whether we can do that in five years, I'm not sure, but um, but that is the hope. Yeah, and you know the the, the difficulty there obviously is uh, you have to show that you're beating a human, right? Uh, that's your competition, um, and the human comes with lot of intuition, experience. Um, uh, and, and even information that the human can really describe, but exist uh, in his or her brain, right? So, so, so that is where the contention is going to be. Can we demonstrably show superiority well, to a human? Or well, is this not something that, that you that's think actually about? not the problem because I'm not competing with a clinician. I'm yeah. competing with the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Right. So the pharmaceutical industry has a failure rate of 99.999%. Right. And, and we have diseases like sepsis for which there is no approved therapy. So coming up with anything that works yeah. is going to be a win. Right. 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 And, and it's, you know, um, so 20 years ago when I was doing this, uh, it took uh, a drug uh, from idea to market about $1.4 billion uh, to get to market. Uh, with inflation and everything, it's about $1.7, $1.8 billion, adjusted for attrition, of course. And so there's a lot of economics there, even if you can show some slight inflation. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, I showed this graph. It's from a, several years ago that shows efficacy in um, um, drugs to market based on expenditures. And it, it w did not look good. Now, that graph is reversed in the last four to five years, but it's because the goalposts have been moved in terms of what considers what is considered to be um, acceptable for a drug. This is primarily cancer. So, again, a different topic, but, um, you know, I think that the fundamental scientific challenge exists, persists. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Gary. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with, uh, with this, uh, this, these ideas. I think it's uh, really All right. Really Thank you very much for the invite. And it's uh, been a pleasure speaking with you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.